What a wonderful truth. I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. If we've convinced ourselves that we don't need Jesus, that we don't need his goodness, his grace, his mercy, then we are simply lying to ourselves. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be talking this morning, we're going to be reading this morning about the blind and the dumb. I'm going to be reading about the rest of my family, myself, my, my, I meant my biological family, my, my dad, his side of the family, my mom's not here so she can't defend herself, so uh, we're going to be talking about the blind and the dumb. Uh, if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, we're all, we all fall into this category, the blind and the dumb. Uh, so if you have your Bibles this morning, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 29. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. He healed him. So the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the, mul- all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to him, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom does your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Let's pray. God, as we read about the blind and the dumb and we read how Jesus has authority, Jesus commands the demons, Jesus opens the eyes of the blind and gives speech to the dumb. Lord, may we be impacted by the authority, by the deity of Christ that we too may, may speak of what God has done. May we see what God has done. Lord, may you rid us of our own idolatry, of our own religion that blinds us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I pray that as you leave the place, as you leave church today as you leave this place of worship that you will not only see what god has done but that you will speak about what god has done it's interesting that this text if you look at verse 22 he he lays out uh in and for me he lays out the thesis of the message this morning he says there was brought to him a demon possessed man who was blind and dumb he could not see and he could not speak and the hand of god Cast out the demons, the scripture says at the end of verse 22, it says that he spoke and he saw. He did both. So oftentimes, I believe in Christians' life, in our lives, we see what God has done. And then we sit back and we think, wow, isn't God amazing? And then we go about our lives. But it's interesting that he both saw and spoke. And so I pray that as you leave the place today, that you will not only see what God has done, but that you will speak about what God has done. Well, let's, 
let's set the context for the for this passage. Now we understand that last week, Jesus had uh, the Pharisees had questioned Jesus. Him and his disciples were going through, and his disciples were were eating grain on the Sabbath, and then Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, in their righteousness, in their in their understanding of the law, remember the Pharisees were those who had uh, a very high regard for the law, as all the Jews. And because of that, because that was the only pillar, that was the only thing of Israel that had remained, then the Pharisees had added layer on top of layer on top of layer to the law so that they would protect themselves from transgressing the law. So if the law says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, then we're going to add all this other stuff around that commandment to make sure that we don't transgress that law, to make sure that we remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They would... They added laws like you cannot travel a certain distance or you cannot, uh, you, you can only, uh, you cannot prepare a meal on the Sabbath. You had to prepare a meal before the Sabbath. And so if they were going to church, they would have to put the crock, they would have to put the roast in the crock pot at 11.59 because if they put the roast in the crock pot at 12.01, then that would be considered work and they would be preparing a meal on the Sabbath day and that would be transgressing the law. They had added all of these extra things to the law in an effort to keep themselves from transgressing the law. It, it, it wasn't in an effort to be, to be self-righteous or in an effort to be this, this, this Pharisee that, that we now understand as Pharisee, but it, it was in an effort to keep the law. It was, it was good intentions. It was motivated by righteous intentions. But nonetheless, they had added all of this external trappings to the law. And so when Jesus' disciples were picking grain on the, on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, then they, by their own increases and by their own extrapolations of the law, they said that the disciples and Jesus are transgressing the law. But Jesus and the disciples were not transgressing the law of God. They were transgressing the Pharisees' understanding and extrapolations of the law. And then when Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath, they said, he, he's working on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, again, he says, it is your understanding that is wrong, not healing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. And this is, this is where, where this passage takes place. And go to, go to verse 14, because I want us to understand, at the end of this questioning, at the end of this questioning, the Pharisees, they come up with a conclusion. They say, okay, something's got to give. Look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. This is how we know they were Baptist. They got together, they formed a committee, and they said, okay, how do we get our way? How do we destroy this man, Jesus? It was, he was challenging them. He was questioning their, their authority. He was questioning their understanding, their interpretation. And so they got together. They had a committee meeting, and they said, how are we going to destroy this man? They had counseled together. They had conspired together to destroy Jesus. Now, I want us to understand that Jesus was both aware of his purpose and the timeline of the Father. Look at verse 16. After Jesus confronts the Pharisees, Jesus slipped away understanding his purpose and his time. Now look at verse 16. 
and he warned them, uh, back up to verse 15, but Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from them. Many followed them and he healed them all, verse 16, and he warned them not to make him known. We see this elsewhere in scripture where Jesus would perform a great, a great miracle or a great sign or, or he, would, he would teach or he would do something miraculous and he would warn them, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Why? Was it because Jesus didn't want the, the message of the gospel to go forth? No, not at all. Because elsewhere we see in scripture where Jesus will say, go and tell everyone about what you've seen and what you've heard. Jesus was, was well aware both of his purpose and of the timing of the Father. And Jesus understood that it is not yet the time to reveal who I am. It is not yet time to reveal the deity and the purpose of who I am. He says, don't tell anybody. Look at Hebrew, I'm sorry, uh, look at John chapter 12. Flip over to John chapter 12. Once to understand, Jesus knew, well, Jesus was well aware of his purpose and the timing of the Father. John chapter 12, verse 23. Now John chapter 12 comes right before John chapter 13. Everybody picked up on that? John chapter 13 is the Lord's Supper. Jesus meets with his disciples. He washes their feet. Immediately following the Lord's Supper, what happens? Jesus and his disciples, they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas leaves during the Lord's Supper. He goes and he pays off the, the high priest. And while Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the high priest and the Roman authorities show up. They arrest Jesus. Uh, they have the trial before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas. Jesus is uh, uh, flogged. Jesus is crucified. He's buried. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. So John chapter 12 is right before all of that which is about to transpire. And look at what he says in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, or for the Son of Man to be lifted up. To be lifted up. To be elevated on a cross. Jesus is well aware. Earlier in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus telling his disciples, My hour has not yet come. In John chapter Two, the wedding feast at Cana, whenever Jesus is with his mother, he says, Mother, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. He's well aware of his purpose and the timing of the Father. So, Jesus, go back to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees. Understanding his hour has not yet come. He rebukes the Pharisees. He begins to perform miracles, healings, and he says, don't tell anybody. My hour has not yet come. The Pharisees, in their zeal for religion, in their zeal for spirituality, miss the revelation of God. They just miss it. Look at the text. Verses 22, 23, and 24. Was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. He healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And the multitudes who were there, not the Pharisees, the multitudes who were there, they said this. This man casts out demons. Surely this is not the son of David, is he? The multitudes came to the conclusion, is this man the son of David? They, they asked a very legitimate question. This man cast out demons. The, the dumb speak. The blind see. 
is this man the son of David? Can this man be the son of David? I propose to you that the multitudes that are there in verse 23 are the same multitudes that witnessed the healings earlier in the chapter 12. And if you tell people not to say anything, what are they inevitably going to do? They're going to say something. Especially if what had taken place in chapter 12 had taken place. Jesus heals them of their sickness. He heals them of their disease. He heals them of their blindness. He heals them of their, of their deafness. He heals them of their infirmities. He heals them of their afflictions. He says, don't tell anybody. How well do you think that went over? The message of Jesus was spreading through the world, was spreading through the, the, the countryside like wildfire. And the multitudes see what Jesus has done. Not only is he healing the sick, not only is he healing the lame, but he's casting out demons. He has authority over the spiritual world. And so they come to this conclusion. This man must be the son of David. Notice the Pharisees' response. Verse, 23, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man cast out demons by the prince of demons. The multitudes say this man must be the son of David. The Pharisees say this man is not the son of David. Why? Because the Pharisees, in their thirst and their zeal for religion and spirituality, miss the revelation of God. You understand that Christ himself was the full revelation of the deity of God. He was God's full revelation. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. I want us to understand this. Jesus was the full representation of the Father to humanity. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And He, He being Christ, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at that very first, that very first sentence. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is not a reflection of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus was and is the full representation of all of who God is. And He was standing and walking and preaching and teaching and healing right in the midst of the Pharisees and they missed it. Right in the midst of the religious leaders. Right in the midst of the scribes. Right in the midst of the teachers of the law. And they missed it. Why? Because they were so clouded by their own zeal for religion, by their own zeal for spirituality, that they said, surely this cannot be the guy. Because faithfulness to God looks like X, Y, and Z. They had their own understanding of what, of what the Messiah was going to be, their own understanding of what righteousness was, their own understanding of what spirituality was, and if it didn't fit into their understanding, then it couldn't be God. It's a good thing we don't think like that. It's a good thing we don't have our own understanding of what godliness is pigeonholed, and when something comes, comes around that, is, that, does, that does not fit into our own understanding, that we don't dismiss it. 
How many times in our own lives have we dismissed something that God was doing, maybe even attributed it to the enemy because it didn't look like something we expected? Growing up, and I know that I'm much younger than many of you, but growing up, I was taught faithfulness to God equals Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You want to be faithful to God, you're in church every time the doors are open. If you want to be faithful to God, you go to Sunday school, you go to Sunday morning church, you go to Sunday night church, you go to Wednesday night church. Anything other than that is not faithfulness to God. Is it possible that we have applied and extrapolated from the Scriptures, read into the Scriptures something that's not there? Is it possible that someone could be faithful to the Lord, serving the Lord, and not be a church every time the doors are open? Is it possible that in our zeal for righteousness, and in our zeal for spirituality, that we have been blinded to the revelation of God? The Pharisees were blinded by their own spirituality, by their own righteousness, pseudo-righteousness. And then the Pharisees justify, they explain away the works of Christ. They seek to justify their own idolatry. They worshipped the law. They worshipped righteousness. Because true godliness must look like what I expect it to look like. What if God revealed himself in such a way that challenged the status quo? What if God revealed himself in such a way that did not look like what we expected? It's interesting, all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, God always shows up in a way that is not expected. It's interesting, the father, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the older. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older. Esau had the birthright. Esau was deceived by his brother Jacob, which literally means liar. Jacob received the blessing. Jacob received the birthright. Jacob was not whom was expected. He should not have been the patriarch. His name means liar. He was a deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright. Yet he becomes the patriarch. Joseph, the younger son, becomes the unexpected savior. He tells his brothers, you will all bow before me. They say, yeah, we'll see about that. They throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery. He spends... He spends a great portion of his life in slavery to Potiphar and eventually is thrown in prison. 
spends a great deal of his life in prison until finally he's released out of prison because he can interpret dreams. He's elevated to the second in command in Egypt and he becomes the savior for the people of Israel. Why? Because there was a famine and the only nation, the only civilization that had any money and had any provision was Egypt. Why? Because Joseph was there. Because the hand of God was there. And the unexpected became the Savior. Jacob, Joseph, David. 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. As Jesse's sons are paraded before Samuel. Verse 7. 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, as Jesse's sons are paraded before Samuel, Samuel hears from the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Israelites expected a Messiah to be a warrior. They expected a king. They expected a warrior to deliver them from the bondage of Israel. I'm sorry, for the bondage of Rome. They expected Israel to be delivered, to be rescued. They expected their Messiah to be a mighty warrior, a king, a deliverer. They got Jesus. It wasn't what they expected. The Pharisees expected a king. They expected royalty. They expected someone who who commanded authority. Someone who would stand up to the Roman government. Someone who would deliver them from oppression. Someone who would deliver them from bondage. They got a Jesus who would stand silent before Pilate. Who would suffer and die upon a Roman cross. This Jesus was not what they expected. He did not fit their their mold. He did not fit their expectation. And I believe that many of us expect a Jesus to fit our expectations. We expect a Jesus to come into our lives and to fix our problems and to solve our difficulties and to rid us from our afflictions and to comfort us in our difficulties and to help us through whatever it is. We expect Jesus to be able to put a band-aid. We expect Jesus to be Santa Claus. What if God reveals Himself in such a way that challenges your status quo? What if God reveals Himself in such a way that is different than you expected? Matthew chapter 12. They brought Him a demon-possessed man, verse 22. A man who was blind and who was dumb. And He healed him. So that the dumb man spoke and saw. There are three people in this passage. There's the dumb and the blind. There's the multitudes. And there's the Pharisees. I believe that most of us fall into the category of either the multitudes 
or the Pharisees. We watch what God has done. We're amazed at what God has done. And we look around and we say, is this really Jesus? Is this really the son of David? Or we're the Pharisees. We explain away, we justify the works of God. Or we flat out deny the works of God. Or we conspire together at how we might minimize the work of God. But I believe that within the church in America that there are very few blind and dumb. Because when the blind man came in contact with Jesus, his eyes were opened. And he saw Jesus for who he was. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, having authority over all And he was directly impacted by the hand of Christ. And when he was directly impacted, when he had an experiential understanding of who Christ was, he spoke about who Christ was. His eyes were opened and he saw. And he spoke. Many of us are like the multitudes. We see what God has done. And we say to ourselves, this is really amazing. Jesus really does save. He really does transform lives. And then we go back to our jobs and we go back to our lives and everything's fine. We sit in our air-conditioned house, we watch our football, we listen to our music, and life is fine. We show up the next Sunday. And we see what God has done. We hear about what God has done. We hear how He opened the eyes of the blind, how He made the dumb speak, how He opened the ears of the deaf, how He healed how He healed the lame, how He cast out demons, how He performed miracle and miracle, how He caused the dead to live. And we say to ourselves, that's wonderful. We go home. We turn on our football. We eat our fried chicken. And we go about our lives. But I believe God is calling us not to be the multitudes, nor is He calling us to be the Pharisees, but He's calling us to be the dumb and the blind. Those who've been impacted by Jesus in such a way that our eyes are open and we speak. It's not enough to see what God has done. The multitudes saw what God had done. And they followed Jesus until it became difficult. And then they scattered. But those who were blind and dumb, who had their eyes open and their mouths open, they followed Jesus to the death. The disciples, whose eyes had been opened, whose lives had been changed by Jesus, gave their lives for Christ. The woman caught in adultery, who experienced the grace of God in a very experiential way, I believe that she never stopped following Jesus. Martha, Mary, who watched Lazarus come out of the grave. Lazarus, who was dead and is alive. Nicodemus, who experienced the grace of God, was there at the grave with Joseph of Arimathea. There were those who came in contact with Jesus, who had an experiential understanding of who Christ was. Their eyes were opened and they spoke, even if it cost them their life. It's not enough to see. 
It's not enough to see who Jesus is. We must speak of who Jesus is. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, the disciples were constantly warned not to speak any more of Jesus' name. This was their response. Kill us if you have to. But we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. Have you experienced the grace of God in such a way that you cannot help but speak about it? You say, but preacher, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say. I don't have the Bible memorized. You don't have to. Revelation chapter 12, 11 says this, And they overcame him, him being the enemy, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. The most powerful tool that God has given you against the enemy and against the world of darkness is your testimony. What has God done in your life? How has God transformed you? What is your experience? Because the blind, the blind and the dumb man, he can't talk about what happened to the adulterous woman. He can't talk about what happened to, to Zacchaeus. He can't talk about what happened to, to, to Lazarus. But he can talk about what happened to himself. Because his eyes were open. And he was able to speak. You may not be able to talk about what someone else experienced, but you can certainly talk about what God has done in your life. I want to challenge you with this, church. This week, as we go into a time of invitation, I'm going to ask you to pray a very simple prayer. Ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, to bring to my mind whom you would have me speak about what I've seen and what I've heard. This is the prayer. God, who would you have me tell about Jesus? God, who would you have me invite to church? God, who would you have me tell about the love of Christ? That's the prayer. And when God reveals that person, when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, would you make a commitment to tell that one person about what God has done in your life? Let's pray. God, we know that you are a God that you are a God who continually works that you have already begun to work in hearts here this morning. God, we know that your word is true and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces the heart. Lord, there are those here this morning, there are those here this morning who are Pharisees. Those who have their own understanding, their own expectation, their own 
interpretation of what godliness and righteousness looks like. And when it doesn't match, they dismiss it. Now this morning, those people have been convicted by your word. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to repent. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your self-righteousness. And acknowledge that God works in ways that are unexpected. There's some of you here, the majority of us here are multitudes. We see what God has done all around us. We know the stories. We know of His faithfulness. We have seen Him work transformatively in our lives and in others' lives. And we go about our lives unaffected and unimpacted. But God, I believe that there are those here who are blind and dumb, whose eyes have been opened, and whose mouths have been commanded to speak. So Lord, as we ask the very simple question, God, who would you have me talk to? Who would you have me share the love of Jesus with? Who would you have me invite to church? Who would you have me tell about my story? God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to in each and every heart in this place reveal a name. A cousin, a co-worker, a family member, a friend. God, and may you find us obedient. May we say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. We must not only see, we must speak. We've heard the adage, share the gospel wherever you go, and if necessary, use words. Church, it's necessary, use words. God, may you convict us of our complacency. May you burden us for the lost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.